Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for all your good gifts. We thank you, Father, for the most inexpressible gift of all in its awesomeness, your son Jesus Christ, born of a woman, went to the cross for our sins. You raised him from the dead on the third day. So that whoever simply believes the good news about Jesus Christ will never perish, but has eternal life. We also thank you, Father, for all of the uh, blessings that you've given us of uh, provision and uh, joy and uh, spiritual blessings, especially, Father, the ability to be content no matter what our circumstances are. Father, we ask today in that regard that we would pay attention to your word when it comes to that kind of a thing, the spiritual aspects of our lives, and that we would focus on that so that whatever's going on around us will uh, kind of melt away as we understand the incredible things that you have prepared for us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All righty, a couple of announcements as we get started today. This month we've been featuring Basic Training Bible Ministries as the missionary organization. You can check them out at their website, www.basictraining.org www.basictraining.org. Next Sunday, of course, is the first Sunday, not only of the month, but of the new year. So we will be definitely celebrating. Good goodbye to 2020, right? But we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper because it is the first Sunday of the month. All righty, today's title comes, of course, from 1 Timothy. It's from chapter 6, where we will begin today. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you could turn with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Now, we're getting to the end of 1 Timothy, a few more weeks on that, and then we'll be in a new book. <clears throat> haven't completely decided which one, but I'm, I'm leaning towards one. I won't tell you until we get closer. But leave you in suspense. Yeah. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and of our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited. He understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now remember, in chapters 5 and 6 of this letter, Timothy is being instructed by Paul about how to lead and manage um, and direct the different kinds of people in the congregation. We've seen men and women. We've seen the elders and the deacons. We've seen, um, most recently, the widows and their families. So now in chapter 6, he's going to now deal with three additional groups 
in the congregation, slaves, which we're about to talk more about, false teachers, which we've already seen come up in this letter several times, and then the congregation generally. So he's going he's to talk about slaves, false teachers, and the congregation generally. Now that seems like a very diverse set of, of groups, but we're going to see also that there are two unifying themes. You may have picked up on it, but they're unifying themes across the board. These are, we've seen these the first one before, and that is that the big message, one of the big messages that Paul is trying to get across to Timothy is that the behavior of the congregation is key to the spread of the gospel. The behavior, it can either help or hinder the progress of the gospel message. Remember, he had the same concern when it came to selecting the elders, that they had to have a good reputation with outsiders, right? Why? So that the, that the gospel in the church would not be spoken ill of. This is a really important consideration for Paul. Well, why? Because his whole focus at the end of the day was to preach the gospel. And at that point in time, um, he had, of course, a few posts, if you want to put it that way, where he was sending out the word, where he would come. But, but like, for example, in Ephesus, where, that's where Timothy is when Paul writes to him here. We saw that. Well, Ephesus was the, um, the hub of a whole series of churches that were formed because Paul had risen up that church in Ephesus. So if that church had fallen into disrepute, that would have been a major impediment to those other places founding churches and growing and and so forth. We forget that, but remember, it's not an issue with God as much as it is an issue with people, with unbelievers. What is it that their expectations are? What would it be that would throw a big monkey wrench into their um, understanding of what the church is all about? Paul's very concerned about that, and we see that here as well. The behavior of the congregation can help or hinder the progress of the gospel message. That, That theme we've seen before, but today there's a new one. There's a new one, and it's contentment in any circumstances. He brings that out when he says, in verse 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now you might say, well, that's verse 6. That seems to be the only place that is brought up. Well, in in as many words, yes, but if you consider the fact that in verses 1 and 2, when he talks about the slaves, he's basically saying, They should accept their role in life. They should honor their masters and not be disrespectful. He's basically saying, be content in your situation, as difficult as it is. And the same thing, he then brings out um, what's going on with the false teachers to show the opposite. Here are men who are never content. They're always stirring up trouble. They're always disputing and envying and wanting what the others have and wanting to be uh, noticed. And they're fighting with one another and so forth constant friction. That is not the sign of men who are content. And so this is a unifying theme as well in this first section in chapter um, 6. I'd like you at this time to please turn to Philippians chapter 4 verse 12. Philippians chapter 4 verse 12. We're going to see what Paul means by contentment, both when it comes to the congregation at Ephesus and more importantly now for us and how we are to understand what he means by contentment. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. He talks about himself, but he says what? I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. 
Well, the secret, of course, is to be content in whatever situation you find yourselves. You know, there are, very, there are many, many, many discontented rich people. There are. There are many, many people who have been blessed in great ways, and they're discontented. You know, I mean, I see some of the people that seem in the most hurry are some of the, they have the best cars. You ever notice that? The people, the people with like the Mercedes and all this stuff, they're always in a hurry. They're cutting people off. Why? Because they're not really content. I'm not picking on anybody who has a Mercedes this morning. Don't worry about it, man. I know all about it. But. So that's the, th- that's, the di- that's the situation. If you think about it, there's a lot of people, the reason they became rich is because they were discontented and they wanted more. It's very hard. Human nature always wants more. It's very hard to combat that other than spiritually. And that's what he's going to talk about. He's going to say, listen, godliness, right? Learning about the ways of God the Father, understanding the heart of Jesus Christ, understanding the tremendous future we have and the way we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. By focusing on that, our gratitude for those things, that's how you remain content. You realize that the other things that, that men and women of the world spend all this time trying to acquire, whether it's fame or riches, whatever it might be, those things are not lasting, no matter what they are. But what can never be taken away are the spiritual blessings that we've received, and we have to concentrate on that. That's where our contentment comes from. That's the secret that Paul learned. He learned that no matter what he was going to go through, he can go through it because of Christ, who strengthens him in every situation. And that we are to understand that the Father's promised us that he will never withhold any good thing. And that, and that uh, he, he, those who love him, he's working all things together for good. That's a source of great contentment when we can see that and rest in it. So that's the second theme that we're looking at today. All right, let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and let's look at this verse by verse. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 6, and we'll walk through this passage from verses 1 through 6. And the first thing we're going to talk about are slaves. 1 Timothy 6, 1. 1 Timothy 6, 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Clearly here, he is talking about something sacrificial, something that goes against human nature. Okay, no man wants to be under the yoke of another master. We want freedom. And so it's a tremendous sacrifice. Now, it was enforced on them, but then they came into the church and they understood about the freedom they have in Christ. And that could stir up this desire and issue to be free in the natural realm. And so he's saying that, please, be content. You know, regard your own masters and worthy of all honor. But why? Notice the reason. So that the name of God and of our doctrine will not be spoken against. In other words, you're on a team. And that's a team where you have freedom with one another. But the purpose of that team is to spread the gospel, is to grow and to bring the gospel to other people. That's primary. Because you know what? All, all of the members today, all of us come in and we have burdens. We have situations about our life that we wish, wish were different. And if we start focusing on that and trying to draw the church into some kind of a cause because of what we may have been going through, that's going to detract from the real mission of the church. And so he's even saying that about slaves. Now the fact of the matter is, is at the time, the first century, there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. 
millions of them. Some of them were the men that were defeated in war. Others were born into a family where there the, the, the was slavery or servitude. Um, the, the different situations, but some, people, some men just were, were penniless. They lost all their financial resources, and they decided that it would be better for them to, to basically join themselves up and be a servant with a rich family than it would be for them to try to make it on their own. So there were a lot of different reasons why, but there were millions of them. And that, that, what that tells us, too, is that there were an awful lot of them in the church. We know this. You know, Paul, in his letters, talks several times about slaves and their masters. That tells us that there were definitely quite a number of slaves and masters in the congregations around the Roman Empire that Paul founded. Now, as, to, as it is today, slavery in the ancient world was a brutal and shameful thing. Nobody wanted to be a slave. And what does it mean to be a slave? Well, it means this, that you are the exclusive property of some other person. You're the property of, of the master. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be considered as property of somebody else. And, and worst of all, they had no control over their own lives. They were told where to be at all times, what they were to do. They, their, their family, all right, they, they could be married or their family could be split up. They had no control over their own lives. And again, this is a very, very difficult circumstance to find oneself in. And, and, but again, that's, that's not exclusive to the slaves because that's also true. If you take a look at this, um, there were also, let's say, uh, young people, women, who found it felt under the same yoke. They maybe felt they were the property of their husbands. They had no control over their lives. So the, the point is that slaves were the extreme. But these kind of situations that people find in, many of us find ourselves in circumstances that we wish we weren't in. Okay? Slavery is, is the extreme, no doubt about it. And we're going to talk about why that is what Paul talks, fo- focuses on, the slaves. We're going to see why he does that. Masters could treat their slaves any way they wanted to. Some were kindly. They were. Others were cruel. Peter talks about that. If you please turn now to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Masters could treat their slaves any way they wanted to. They were their property. They they controlled where they were, what they did. Some of them were kindly. Others were cruel. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Yeah, I don't know why I have... Oh, no, I do have that up there. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, or slaves, the same word in the Greek, doulos. Be submissive to your masters with all respect. Peter says the same thing. He tells the slaves, I know you're in a very difficult situation, but nevertheless, submit to your masters. Give them respect. And notice what he says after that. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. This is the true test of respect for authority. No matter what, if the person is authority, authority is good and gentle, be submissive to them. However, if they're unreasonable, be submissive and be respectful to them as well. That's the true test of authority, of respect for authority. You know, it's, it's pretty straightforward 
to submit to somebody when they're good and kind and taking care of you. It's really hard to submit to somebody when they're cruel or they're not attentive or they're abusive. The same issue comes up in different relationships of authority. Paul deals with this in other places and in this letter with respect to the rulers, with the government. And so regardless of whether they're a, they're a, um, a kindly uh, government, whether they're um, you know, respectful and um, they have integrity and so forth, or if they're brutal and vicious, it doesn't matter. The principle is you submit to those in authority. Same thing in a marriage situation. Um, it, 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 the, te- the test of being... Um, Submissive and uh, to your husband's ladies is when they're not, they're not asking you the right thing to do, when they're not behaving the way you want them to. That's when it's hard. That's when you know that you're doing something as to the Lord, not as to men. Again, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Why? For this finds favor, for the sake of conscience toward God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. When suffering unjustly. See, see, we have a, 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 a in, in our culture, we think that everyone should have justice, and they should. But we also think for ourselves that I don't want to suffer unjustly, right? Well, the point is, is that, that as a Christian, you will find yourself in situations where that's exactly what's happening. Much of it because you're a Christian and you're following the principles and directives from God's word, from the Lord. Okay? For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. In other words, regardless of circumstance. Regardless of circumstance, the slave was to give honor to his master. The question is, why? Well, let's stay in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's go back a few verses to verse 12. Look at verse 12. First, first Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, the Gentiles are going to persecute you, they're going, to slam, they're going to say things that aren't true about you. I think, for example, about the um, civil rights movement that Martin Luther King headed up in the, in the 50s and 60s, where they, they received all kinds of abuse. They were arrested. They were spit on. They had hoses um, placed on them and so forth, dogs. But no matter what, they remained nonviolent. Why? Because so that the cause wouldn't be hurt. So that those who were slandering them had really no grounds. And over time, those who were observing their good deeds, their peacefulness, right? they would, over time, say, you know what? There's something here. These people deserve to have, have a hearing. Same thing here. He's saying, listen, they may be slandering you now. They may be hateful. But keep on keeping on with the good deeds, with your character, your integrity. Because they, will, they observe them. Whether or not they're acknowledging them now, there won't come a day when they will be glorifying God because of you. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 13. Let's continue. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, for us today, what would that be? Again, in a family, that would be the children and their parents. That's a human institution. 
That would be wives and husbands. That's a human institution. That would be the police. That's a human institution. That would be the government. That's a human institution. He's saying, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. None of them are perfect, but the fact of the matter is is that these authorities have been set up by God himself. Societies couldn't run without these relationships. A family's not going to run if there's no respect for the parents from the children. Right? If there's no honoring the, the husband by the wife. It just can't work. Now, of course, they're imperfect people. But that all the more reason why we should respect these lines of authority. So they keep us under wraps, as it were. We always focus on the shortcomings and evils, perhaps, of those who are in authority. But you have to also realize the reason there even is authority is because we got our problems, too. We all have sin natures. We would, be, we would be running a lot more wild if we didn't have those authorities in our lives to keep us under wraps. So he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Notice, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Notice, who, who, are, the, who are the governors sent by? The Lord but the governor sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's the reason why we ought to submit ourselves. That's the reason why slaves ought to be respectful and submissive to their masters. Not because slavery is right. It's not right. But by submitting yourself even to an unfair human institution... You're showing that the will of God is for you to do the right thing, and eventually you will silence the ignorance of foolish men. You know, today, again, we have a big problem with authority. You probably notice in our country. Um, people don't respect the president, but also people don't respect the governors of states because they think they have a reason not to. But I hope you understand that when you do that, if you do that, you're breaking things down that the Lord has established. All right. All authority comes from the Lord. There's a reason for it. Our calling isn't to question that. It is to submit ourselves to it for the Lord's sake, not for our sake. It could it could be something that would be harmful in a sense to us. It would be something where we'd have to sacrifice. We'd have to put aside our own opinions and and and, and preferences and so forth. But it's really important. It's really important, most of all, as the, for the unbelievers to observe us, just like. The, in First Peter, he talks about the wives. He says, listen, you can win over your husbands without a word, with your respectable and chaste behavior. Martin Luther King's movement won over in the hearts of an entire nation because they stuck to nonviolence. And it's the same principle for us as the church. You know, people are always looking at the church. By the way, today in the United States of America, believe me, there are powerful forces that would like any excuse to clamp down on churches. And we're seeing that like we've never seen it before. What are we to do? Are we to fight a revolution against the, the government? Are we, to, are we to protest? No, we're to stick with what God has told us to do, including submitting to every authority, whether it's the president, whether it's the governors, the Congress, or, or anything else that's in authority. Well, back to the slaves. The New Testament has a lot to say about slaves and masters, and we don't have the time to go through all the passages today. But I do want to say a couple of things about what the Bible says and doesn't say in the New Testament about slavery. Nowhere was the church instructed to combat the institution. 
Now, this may be shocking. Um, we think today about the fact that uh, we fought a civil war to abolish this institution, and we did. But here the point is that that's not the church's job. The church's job is not to combat the institution of things like in this day, in that day and age, it was slavery. Never instructed. Now, that may come as a shock to you, but tr- check it out. Check out, if we were to check out the passages on masters and slaves, you would find that nowhere does it say, hey, you know, we should, as a church, go out there and stop this institution. By the way, it wouldn't have worked because the might of the Roman Empire was, was uh, in support of that institution anyway. But the, the, the key, though, is to understand that's not the purpose of the church. It's not. It, it's not to go on an activist crusade. Okay? It is to stick to what we're called to do which is to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to be honoring and respectful to one another within the church. We are to have no divisions based on anything, including the slave and master. See, we are, we are not supposed to take over the world. People who say we're going to spread the kingdom, that's not our job. Our job is to be a haven. It is to, be, to, to notice a huge night and day difference between how things are in the congregations of Jesus Christ, and how things are in the world, so that we can rescue some people out of there into here. That's our job, all right? It's not, we're not going to take over the world. We're not. We're not going to have, you know, we're not going to force ourselves into the idea that we're going to be a Christian nation, okay? We have Christians in the nation, but the church isn't supposed to be you know, battling against other forces in the country so that it comes out on top in a political way, in a power situation. That's not, that's not the job of the church. And we know that because even something as evil as slavery, the church was not instructed to fight it. Nowhere. Slaves, moreover, were never encouraged to rebel against their masters. Didn't we see the opposite? We saw that they should be submissive and be respectful to their masters. Person doing that is not in rebellion. They're, they're like exclusive. You're either going to honor and respect your master or you're going to rebel against them, right? And those are the choices that you have in any human institution. You're either going to honor and respect the government or you're going to rebel against it. Children are going to be honoring and respectful to their parents or they're going to rebel against their parents. Women are to be honoring and respecting their husbands or they'll be in rebellion against their husbands. See, those are the two choices, and Paul says, in, in the worst institution of all, slavery, he says, I don't want you to choose rebellion. Not because, you, not because you don't have a cause there. You are suffering unjustly. But if you do that, you're going to draw the energy away from what the real mission of the church is. And the people outside are going to look and they're going to say something like, see that? You give these people a little freedom in Christ that you talk about, and all of a sudden they want to turn the whole society upside down. There must be something evil going on in that church. See that? So that's the big, that's what we always have to think about. What are the implications? What are the consequences for how we behave as Christians? Well, but it's interesting, though. It's not as if the Lord or the New Testament ignores the question entirely. There's another solution here. And again, it's not to do everything in the world, it's to do everything here, inside the congregation, among the church, among the family. That is where we to put in practice these principles of loving one another, of respecting one another, to be putting the one other's interests before our own, to be forgiving others, and so forth. You see, in Christ is completely different than in Adam. In the church is completely different from in the world. And that's our job, to cultivate the, the bonds of love that we have for one another. 
and to be respectful to authority. All right, that's our calling. Nowhere was the church encouraged to combat the institution, but in the church, in Christ, slaves and masters were to treat one another as brothers. There should be no, that hierarchy shouldn't exist in the church. Oh, when you go outside, it will be there again. But in the church, in our relationships with one another, all that should be put aside. That's what we learn in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 28. Please turn there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 28. We have, of course, a big thing in the United States today called identity politics. What is that? Well, identity politics is basically politics is saying you have a grudge, you have a right to be dissatisfied, discontent, and it should be based on an identity. You know, if you're this certain color and a certain sex and certain gender orientation or whatever that looks like, that package, you, you know, if you have the right combination of that, while well, you have the right, you have the most claim on other people. That's the principle, right? But that's the opposite of what the Lord tells us to do. He says you're not supposed to look after your own interests, but the interests of others. Notice how it's put in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, when we see one another, we are to see ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's it. We are not to notice the distinctions. We are not to make an issue of, of somebody who's making more money than somebody else, of somebody who has a better status in the community than somebody else. Those things should melt away when we consider who we are as members one of another, as members of the body of Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You're all the same. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There are no ethnic distinctions that we are to make in the church. There is neither slave nor free man. Now today that would be an issue of of economics and and status as a class, right? We're not to put down somebody because they come from a certain um, ethnic group or from a certain um, economic strata of society. There's no such thing, right, in the church. There is neither male nor female, You're not to make distinctions in terms of how we treat one another, in terms of our genders. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. That's the answer to all these conflicts, to all the unfairness in the world. It's for there to be this place, this family, these relationships, where none of that matters. Where we're all members one of the other. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 once again, because... We're going to see that he's next going to take up another group. So we're, going to go, we're going to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's going to bring up the second group now. All right? He's talking about slaves. Now he's going to talk about the false teachers. False teachers were the big troublemakers. But all of the trouble that was going on in the church at Ephesus, in one way or another, was stirred up by the teachings of these false apostles. He's going to deal with them again. He rebukes this group several times in this letter. It's a major, major um, goal that Paul, that Paul has in raising up Timothy. It's to, re- re- to recognize when these false teachers are doing their thing, to rebuke them, in some cases even throw them out of the congregation. 
So here now, Paul's going to show how their false teaching breeds discontent. Discontent. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, and does not agree with sound words, there will always be those who want to come in and they, they, want, they have their own doctrines. We see this in the cults today. We see lots of people that, that form churches and they say that, you know what, Jesus isn't God. I mean, that's true of the Mormons. That's true of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's true of the Universalist Church. There's a lot, out, a lot of people out there who want to change the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, remember Paul said in chapter 1, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. All right? that, that was not the goal of the false teachers in Ephesus. We're going to see that. Again, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, conforming to our lining up with the will of God, that our actions, our behavior, our beliefs line up with God's ways, God's word, God's character. If they're not doing that, he is conceited and understands nothing. This is a huge rebuke, once again, of the false teachers. He's not going after the sinful people. He's not going after... Um, no, here he understands the issue of all issues is teaching. And false teaching is the destructive among, above everything else. They've got all these problems. He deals with all of them. But he comes back again and again and again to the root problem, which is false teaching. He is, verse he is, four, he's conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, stirring up controversy behind the pulpit. You know, fighting about words out of which arise what? What happens when you're stirring up friction and you're stirring up um, disputes and you have controversial questions that you throw out there that are confusing or, or um, disturbing to the people? What happens? Out of which arise envy, strife. Here's the opposite of contentment, by the way. Envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. There are men who will seek power and authority in the church who have depraved minds and they're deprived of the truth. Depraved mind mind just means that they have the same mind as the unbeliever has. When you look up the word depraved in the Bible, depravity, it almost always is associated with the mind. We think about it in terms of the flesh, But if you were to check out that word depravity, and I've done that, it's associated with the mind, with how somebody thinks. That's where the depravity starts. All right? And then what else? Deprived of the truth. That's the issue, right? Because you either have the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, or you're deprived of the truth. You're living in lies. It's one or the other. Now, what's a sign that that they're that kind of a person, that they're that kind of a teacher, a false teacher? who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, they're in it for the money, to make it real simple. That's a big sign. You see that again and again. That the, that the, uh, one of the signs of a man who is not um, following the principles of the word of God is that he's all concerned with money all the time. We have lots of examples, big and small, in our churches today. As a matter of fact, the church is overrun with preachers who are just like this. 
with those who are conceited and understand nothing. They have this interest in the controversies. They're always raising controversy in the, in the church, among churches. Disputes about words, making a big deal of what word a pastor uses to describe something. Or what words mean. Or we see this in, in, in people that go to the original language and they want to fight all day about what a Greek word means. Well, that's, you know, that's, that has its place to understand the Greek, of course. But when that's interfering with the real issue, which is to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to have, to have developing hearts of love, sacrificial, and um, understanding more and more about the source of all of this, which is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the fact that he's in us and we're in him, the fact that he's given us great promises. If these things aren't taught, then no matter how much Greek you know, you're way off base, way off base. Same thing with being overly intellectual and not ministering to the people with their needs. That's the job of the pastor, the elder, is not to be an intellectual. It is to minister to the needs of the people, of the saints, especially the spiritual needs. Unfortunately, we have churches that are overrun with preachers today that do the opposite. They neglect the teachings of Christ. That's where it all starts. They neglect the teachings of Christ. If you want to talk about the different areas where you've got, like I mentioned, the cults, okay, what's their, what is, what all have in common? What they have in common is that they reject the word of God in favor of some other book, some other way, right? Well, that's one of the signs too, all right? People who neglect the teachings of Christ. They'll, they'll have a new book. They'll teach out of, a, I don't mean the Bible, of a new book that's out there that's popular. And they'll have everybody in the congregation get the book. And they'll teach out of that for, for, for a month and a half. And it'll have nothing to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay? They would rather play around with words than teach what God's word has to say. They use their pulpits as weapons. Anyone who, dis, this is one of the things I notice again and again. Anyone who disagrees with folks like this, they're definitely of the devil. I cringe now when people say that. Because, um, first of all, we're, you know, we're, even, um, even angels didn't use a, give a reviling judgment on Satan. I mean, think about that, right? If that's the case, right? If, if, if an elect angel wouldn't re, give a rebuking judgment to Satan... Who are we to go around and telling everybody he's of the devil, he's of the devil, we used to see what he believes, he's evil. It goes on all the time. I stop reading now when I see that. When I see somebody condemning another point of view and they bring up the fact that, well, they're of the devil, they're demonic, I'm done. I'm not going to read anymore. I'm not going to hear anymore. How do you know? Right? How do you know? They're the opposite of content. They're envious. There's an awful lot of envy. They suspect that everyone wants to take what's theirs. Now, is that the job of a pastor? What do they not do? I'll tell you what they not do. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 5 again. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's read this one more time. I think you're already there. 3 to 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness... That's the job. The job of the pastor, the leader, in that day and age, the apostle, was to teach the doctrines, the core doctrines of Christianity. What what happened at the cross? Who are the made to be in Christ? These are the and how are we to treat one another? They don't do that. They they don't focus on the doctrine conforming to spirituality. Instead, they do the opposite. 
So what happens to those men? When they come behind the pulpit, what do they teach? Well, I'll tell you what they don't teach. They definitely don't teach that saints have obligations to one another. Why? That's unpopular. Right? I mean, Timothy had to teach that families have obligations to their widows, to their parents. Well, people don't want to hear that. They would much rather hear about some controversy of a question or, a, or an obscure doctrine. or They would rather get involved in that in envies and suspicions than actually be challenged about the fact, listen, you've got, you got a mother who's a widow. Why don't you go take care of her? Oh, no, no, I'd rather talk about the, the conflict between, you know, hyper-dispensationalism and Calvinism. Let's talk about that all afternoon, you know. There's a place for that, I suppose, but, but not the fight. The place for that is in your own mind. Work out what the Bible really has to say, and then just teach that. Don't be bringing in all these, all these controversies and suspicions all the time. Spend a lot of time teaching the saints about their obligations to one another. That's what we should be doing. But you see, if you, those, think about it. Those who are focused on money, on, on, on their own advancement, they're not going to do that. Why? Because it's unpopular. They might lose people if they teach this. And, and by the way, you know, that's true. I mean, well, you, can, you can teach on a lot of things, but as soon as you turn around and you, and you confront the congregation with something that their duty that they may not be doing then there's going to be resistance. You know, you could lose people over things like that. They stay away from the word of the cross. They won't teach on suffering. Why? Because they, they, that might expose them as a fraud. You know, if they're saying um, prosperity and I want everything to be good, they're not going to teach on suffering because that exposes what they've been teaching about prosperity gospel and so forth. They don't teach on that. And yet, the Word of God talks a lot about suffering and sacrificing for one another. For example, back to 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 20. Hold your place in 1 Timothy. Can we come back? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. What does Peter have to say about it? What is the sound principle related to the Lord Jesus Christ? What's, what's Paul going to say in 2 Timothy? He's going to say, all those who desire... To be godly will be persecuted. Now, you don't hear that very much from the prosperity gospel preachers, the ones on television. You don't hear that, but it's the truth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, when you do what is right, there will be times when you'll suffer for it. And you shouldn't complain about it. You shouldn't try to pass a law you should just realize that this is, this is part of being a Christian. What do you need to do? Patiently endure it. This is not popular, especially in the United States. You don't hear people talking about going through suffering and what's the solution? Just patiently endure it. Everybody wants to make a political issue out of it. Everybody wants to say what others' responsibilities for them are. But sometimes the Lord says, what I want you to do is patiently endure the suffering. This finds favor with God. Verse 21. What's the perspective? You've been called for this purpose. You've been called to be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Why? Since Christ also suffered for you. In other words, if you really have an understanding about what Christ did, what the cross is all about, you'll understand that love involves suffering at times. You'll understand that when you stand up for what is right, that will be unpopular. And you have people turn against you. You may be persecuted in certain ways. What are you supposed to do? Complain? Protest? No. Patiently endure it. Because that's what Christ did. 
When He suffered for us, He gave us an example to follow in His steps. You won't hear that preached very often. Right? That you've been called, since Christ suffered for you, He gave you an example to follow in His steps. What was that? To sacrifice and suffer for the cause of Christ, for the will of the Father, for the good of others. The last thing that these preachers, these false teachers want to talk about is following Christ's example. That's always humbling. It's always something, you, you know, you get involved with discussions and theological disputes and, and then all of a sudden, you know, the cross comes into view. And you realize that so much we've been fighting about is just irrelevant. You know, if you want to be humbled, go back to the cross. Go back to the calling that Christ has for us to follow his example. In other words, get your head on straight. Okay? That's the last thing that somebody was trying to um, have advancement and, have, and, and rule over other people is going to do. Because then they're, they're accountable to do the same thing. They're accountable to do the same thing. Look at 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 16. We've got 1 Timothy, 1 John, 1 Peter. Tough to keep it all straight, but 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Simple. Not controversies about words, but simplicity. Notice the simplicity here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Really simple. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. You know, we, we talk a lot about love in Christianity, and we should. There's a lot about love in the New Testament. But we also need to understand the nature of that love. Right? The patient, kind, not jealous. But notice what it is here. Here's a definition of love according to God. We know love by this, that Christ laid down his life for us. If you want to know the people that love you, it's the people that have laid down their life for you. That have sacrificed for you that have put your interests ahead of their own. That's what real love does. You know love by this, that he, the Lord, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to do the same. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what should be taught behind pulpits. The simplicity of devotion to Christ, but not just as a, as a kind of a general feel-good thing, but to get down to brass tacks and say, you know what? He laid down his life for us. We we, we should use that example and lay down our lives for one another, for the brethren. And then he gives a real specific example. Notice verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? See, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? You can talk about love but you're actually laying down your lives for the brethren. Are you actually saying, you know what? I have the resources to help a brother in need. All right? there's, the, there's the test. There's when things are on the line. What does love do? Helps out the brother. What, what's the opposite of that? Closing your heart against him. It doesn't mean that you can always take care of all the needs of people. Of course you can't. But you should never close your heart against them. Right? You should never say, I don't care about what they're going through. And you should help them as much as you can. If not, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, men who are always interested in advancing their own financial situations in the church, 
That's the last thing they want to teach about. The last thing they want to talk about is their responsibility to take care of others in need, the congregation's responsibility to take care of others in need. In other words, they don't want to talk about the implications of the cross. They just don't want to do it. Well, if you don't want to talk about the implications of the cross as a pastor, you know what Paul calls that in Timothy? He calls it being an enemy of the cross of Christ. Why? We won't see that. But basically he's saying, listen, their God is their desires, their wants, their lusts. That's what they really worship. Okay? You, can't, you, you can't be worshiping the cross of Jesus Christ and be thinking only about your own selfish interests. You can't do it. Now, we, we saw also, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. I want you to see what he says about things. 1 Timothy 6, verses 5 and 6. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt... Now, I'm reading this a little differently now. Because I'm reading the King James this time. All right? I think it says it much clearer than the New American Standard what we're about to talk about. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Gain is godliness. What does that mean? Well, that means that they think that their wealth is a sign of God's favor. If you think that gain is godliness, like the Pharisees did, At that point in time, when Jesus, in his public ministry, the Pharisees and many other Jews thought that a sign of God's favor was wealth. And and people still think that way today. You know, how can you say that they're teaching the right things? They're not prospering. They don't have huge buildings. They don't have thousands of people. They don't have budgets of $10 million. I don't think the Lord's prospering them. Hmm. What does the Bible say? Gain, it's a lie to believe that gain is godliness. That somehow your financial situation proves how godly you are. He says, run away from that. Godliness with contentment. That's the great gain. Not financial, but godliness. Living living the spiritual life that God has called us to live. Living according to these principles of, of the epistles. Um, understanding what God has done for us, and then turning around and in and, 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 uh, response to that, living a life that sometimes involves sacrifice. Godliness with contentment. To be content with your situation, that's great gain. You see, if you think that wealth is a sign of God's favor, you know what's going to happen if you're in charge of a ministry? You're going to turn it into a business. And we see that all the time. You can't, you can't go five minutes without them reminding you of something that they're selling, their book, reminding you of how, you know, plant a seed and you will reap a harvest when they mean give them money. They turn it into a business. It feels like a business. You go in and there's not really a big difference in terms of what's ha- what, what your sense of what's really going on between now and walking into a mall, All right? They turn the ministry into a business. You'll do that if you think that wealth is a sign of God's favor. If you think that gain is godliness, that the Lord is really blessing me because of all the financial blessings that I have, he must be pleased with me. That's what you'll do. You'll turn your ministry into a business. That's entirely backwards. Gain, financial gain, gain in status, gain in numbers, is not godliness. If it were, then Jesus Christ wouldn't be godly when he walked this first time. Why think about that? 
Why? Because he didn't have great riches. He, he sometimes didn't have a place to lay his head at night. Okay? Did he have great status in the community? No, he didn't. It, he, was, he was thought of so ill that eventually they crucified him. Was his ministry huge at the end? No. It was only a few women and one man when he was on the cross. So that, those tests have nothing to do with true godliness. Nothing to do with it. Gain is not godliness. However, godliness with contentment, that's the great gain. That's, that's a gain that is eternal in nature. You see, people who think that gain is godliness are incapable of being content with what they have. Again, contentment. If you think that gain is godliness, if you think you're always supposed to be gaining numbers, gaining members, gaining finances, gaining prestige in the community, what does that mean? You're not content with what you have. You want more. You want more. So that people who think that that, that, that gain is godliness are not going to be content with what they have. Okay, so we've been picking on the false teachers, and we should. But we also need to be reminded about this ourselves. We are in a corrupt culture. Christmas time brings it out. Our culture today sees Christmas as nothing more than an opportunity to buy and sell stuff. That's what our culture today thinks of Christmas. A season of unbridled greed and envy. Well, what's Christmas really all about? The opposite. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Christmas is not about the rich flaunting it. Christmas is not about somebody who gives you more stuff must love you more than somebody who gives you less. That's not what it's all about. Okay? It's not about what you get. It's not about, I, I pick on this commercial every year, and I, I say I'm not going to pick on it, but I always do. It's those car commercials where people, people come out and they have their keys and you're like, I've been so good. Let me give myself this new car. You know, those kind of commercials. Or even, or even better, they have one out now where you've got the husband gets his and hers cars. And he wants her, he's given the red one to her and the blue one to herself. Well, she's not satisfied with that. Not only does she want a new car, but she wants the blue one. It's all about me and getting more and all that. It's insane. What's it really all about? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace. What is grace? Giving freely without any expectation of return. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he was totally rich in heaven. He had everything. He still is. He, as the son of God, you know, he created everything. Everything, he is Lord over all. And yet, he, he came away from those riches, and for our sake, he became poor, born in a stable, not having a place to rest his head at night, having an itinerant ministry where, where his disciples would go into cities and they'd be thrown out, where he would have people reject him again and again and again, where he, where, where he would ultimately be beaten and go to the cross and die a criminal's death. That's, what, that's the poverty that he went through. Why? So that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is God the Son, totally rich in heaven, coming down to earth, be- becoming 
in the form of a slave, meaning that the human race, fallen human, he was not a sinner, but he came into this fallen human race, and God himself took on the, took on the flesh of human being. That's poverty as far as God is concerned. Why did he do it? He did it so that through that, only that, it was the only way that we might be saved and have the blessings that God has given us. Through his poverty, we might become rich. Material gain is not godliness. Far from it. If you're feeling a little insecure this year because maybe you weren't able to get the gifts of people that you wanted to, or maybe you feel like people haven't given you the gifts that you deserve, or maybe you feel like, well, I wish I had more money to be able to put on the kind of Christmas that so-and-so puts on. Relax. That's got nothing to do with godliness. Material gain is not godliness. It's far from it. Our Lord said, as usual, he puts it in the most profound way. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 36, as we wrap up today. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. This would be a good thing for the churches to put on our signs at Christmas time. What is it? Mark chapter 8, verse 36. I was reading something today that said that if, uh, if men just followed this one principle of contentment, we wouldn't have any more wars. I mean, think about that. It's true. If men, I mean, if you think about it, 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 why is it that the, some of the most prosperous nations in the world go to war against each other? How can that possibly be? And the answer is because people want more. More power, more riches, more resources. That's what causes wars. If you look at it, check out World War I and how it got started. Check out why the Japanese attacked us. Check out what's going on in Europe between World War I and World War II. You will find out that it basically boils down to not being content with wanting more than you have in any event. What did Jesus say about that? Mark 8.36 For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Of course that's an exaggeration, but you could say it in another term. What does it gain a man to become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and then forfeit his soul. He might be the CEO for the rest of his life, and maybe that's 20, 30 years. But when he forfeits his soul, that is an eternal, eternal poverty. You and I, if we are, if we are not able to be the uh, financial geniuses that we wish we were and so forth, we don't have the material goods, and yet we have our souls taken care of. By the Lord who is our shepherd. He restores our soul. We have have believed in Christ. We have eternal life. Those are eternal riches. Right? Momentary light affliction now, bearing up under sorrows now, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. But you see, you have to know the word of God, believe it, and live according to it. To have that kind of contentment no matter what. After all, we talk about gain. Let me ask you a question. What greater gain can a man or a woman receive than to be brought from death to life? There's no greater gain than that. 
You were dead, and now God made you alive, and he has given you eternal life. That is the greatest possible gain any man could, or any woman could ever have. Please look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Colossians 3, 22. Colossians 3.22. Slaves, back to the subject of slaves. There's another place in the New Testament where Paul brings up the issue of slavery. What does he say? He says the same thing here. Notice, Colossians 3.22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. And not just with the external service. Not just faking it. Not just doing what people you know, notice. But what? Not as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. Do it as unto the Lord. That way you can't miss. In any, any situation in life where you have called to do something and you might not like it or you might you know, feel like you're losing out because of it, forget about other people. Do it as unto the Lord. You can't lose when you do that. Not only can you can't lose with the Lord, but even in your own contentment, you'll find it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, this is for all of us, do your work heartily. It's for the Lord rather than for men, knowing something. That's why it's important to have the right doctrine, the right teaching, the things conforming to the mind of Jesus Christ. Because if you know those things, then you can be content in any circumstance. Notice verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. The reward of the inheritance. You might not have it yet, but there is an inheritance waiting for you in heaven that can't be destroyed, that can't be taken away from you. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. It may look like you're just serving your master. It may look like you're serving your boss on the job. Women, it may look like you're serving your husband, but ultimately... And and take this on. I am serving the Lord. I don't care if he's a bum. I'm going to serve the Lord by doing things that a wife should do as if he's the greatest husband ever. Why? Because I'm serving the Lord. He is the greatest husband ever. If you're a slave, now today we don't have, well, we do have slaves in the world. That's a whole other subject. Probably have more slaves in the world today than we've ever had, by the way. They're just not in the United States. In any event, if you're a servant and you have a master, Understand that you're really serving the greatest master, the Lord himself. When you have that attitude, you can be content no matter what's going on in your life. And here's the point. If a slave can be content with his circumstances, how much more ought we to be content with ours? If a slave can be content with his circumstances, how much more ought we to be content with ours? If a Christian in Pakistan can be content with his circumstances, with the lowest caste of society, where their, where their job is to make bricks and to go into the um, sewers and take out the gunk and the garbage in the sewers. If they can be content, how much more ought we to be content with our situation in life? Oh, yeah, it may be inconvenient. It may be difficult. It may be challenging. It may even be um, a tragedy at times. But no matter what, We have the treasure we cannot lose. We have the reward of the inheritance. We have eternal life. I want you to turn finally today to Isaiah chapter 53, 7. 
don't complain. In other words, that's contentment. I'm not going to complain about this. Isaiah 53, 7. Now, people that are joining us on Thursday evening in Skype are starting to know where Isaiah is because we're studying that book. We're at the beginning of it. The 53 is farther along. In any event, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Following the Lord's example. What about the Lord? Remember, he was rich, but he came poor for our sake so that we through his poverty might become rich. And when you think about his poverty, I want you to think about him on the cross, beaten, dying for us. That kind of poverty. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Did he complain? Did he scream out like Barabbas did on that day when the, when the people had a choice between freeing Barabbas and freeing Jesus and Barabbas was screaming at the crowd and cursing that Jesus? No. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Christ uttered no complaint under the most horrific circumstances imaginable. The Bible in the book of Hebrews actually says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's the secret, by the way. Paul talks about the secret of being content. That's it. For the joy set before us, we endure things. For the joy of understanding that our sacrifice will result in people being blessed, we endure the sacrifice. See, that's the key. We endure whatever we're going through because of our future is secure. The fact that we know that in the ages to come, God will always be gracing us out. We know that he promises us That no matter what we go through, he'll be there taking care of us, providing for us. That's how we can endure the difficult things that we go through in life. What do we have to complain about? Really? We have the Lord as our shepherd, as David says in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He will never deny you or I any good thing. That's what we should be thinking about. You know what? Yeah, I'm going through hard. I'm going through the shadow of death. I'm going through a place where I need my soul to be restored. But you know what? I have a shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's guiding me. He's restoring my soul. He's giving me every good thing that I need. I will never want for anything. That's how you be. That's how you remain content. I'm just going to read Psalm four. You don't have to turn there. You can turn there later if you want. I just want to read this. This is a place of rest. This is a place of contentment. Notice, well, I'll read it. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, Lord. You have put the gladness in my heart more than their wine and their their grain and their new wine abound. In other words, the gladness in my heart from knowing our Lord Jesus Christ is way greater than all the partying and fake happiness that the world has out there with all their food and wine. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Contentment. For you alone, Lord, make me to dwell in safety. All right, let's close now in prayer. Father, we just want to... Thank you for the fact that you are who you are. 
We thank you for the gift of, of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that we can be content in any situation because of what we know, what we know about you and your character, what we know about your promises, your blessings, what you've already done for us, what Christ did for us, that whatever we go through in terms of suffering, we know that eternal weight of glory awaits us far beyond all comparison to the things that we have to put up with now. And we just uh, want to thank you for that, Father. Help us as the days go by to always find that place of contentment in our heart that can only come from you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, just a couple of things before we close today. Um, I mentioned this Thursday, December 31st, last day of the year. Good way to ring out 2020. We've got a Bible study online, Skype. Starts at 6.30. We've been getting a pretty good turnout. And I'm really, really heartened by that. Um, so please join us if you can on Skype, 6.30, December 31st, New Year's Eve. <laughs> we also pray at the end. If you have any prayer requests, you can go on our website and enter them. We'll be glad to pray for whatever it is you'd like us to pray for. All right. You may, I just want to remind everybody once again about um, giving, Christian giving. Um, it should not be... Uh, Forced, it should not be tied, all right? It should not be made out of guilt. We don't, we don't even pass a basket around because of the human element there of, ooh, I wonder if anyone's looking at me and so forth, okay? Why? It's supposed to be a free thing that you do in gratitude for the things the Lord has done for you, and that's the way we, we do it here. So um, when the Lord puts it on your heart to support the ministry, then we are, we are glad that you are doing that, but we want to leave that between you and the Lord. All right. Just remember, too, that the message that we have that, that uh, changes people's lives is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's simple. It's simply the fact that we are all born sinners and that God loved us so much that he gave us his only son. Is that son of his went to the cross and died for the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. He was buried, and on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead. A miracle. Where he'll always have that eternal life but at the right hand of his Father. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ, the, the Savior, the one who died for your sins and was raised from the dead, will never perish. You believe that, you'll never perish. You'll have eternal life. What a message. What an incredible, gracious message that we have to give the world, to give the people in the world. To people that may be wondering, what's going on in the world today? Why is it that I can't find happiness? Why is it that I'm so afraid of everything? What's, what's the future going to be? What happens when I die? All of these questions that people have will be stirred up by some of the real tough things that are going on right now. And so we'll have the, we'll have the pleasure, the privilege of being able to come before people like that, step into their lives and explain them the true meaning of life. It's who God is, it's who God's Son is, what His Son did for us, and how we are, what, what, how we are to receive that by faith alone in Christ alone. All right. Let's close one more time. Brief prayer. Father, thank you again for your Son and your Word. Father, help us to keep our eyes on your Son, keep our eyes on the things above, not on the things of this earth. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, you're dismissed for the day. Enjoy this day. Um, enjoy this week. And if you've, got, uh, uh, if, you've, if you've been going through a lot this year, my prayer is that 
2021 will be a better year than 2020.